Our scripture reading today is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and can be found on page 1189 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Nathan. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Faith, and uh, this is Let the Youth Pastor Preach Sunday, one of a few throughout the year. Um, I make a joke, but it is good to be back with you all. Um, I do enjoy having an opportunity to open the Word of God with you all, um, and I appreciate Tom and Jeff and Joey for letting me have this opportunity. Um, so it's good to be back with you up here, but it's also just to be good, back, good to be back in Indianapolis. My wife Claire and I drove down to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where my mom's extended family has been celebrating Thanksgiving for as long as I've been alive. Um, and so it was a short trip, an exhausting trip, um, so it's good to be back home. Um, the last time I was up here preaching, we were in our series on the Lord's Prayer, and I was preaching on the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. And uh, before we kind of get into our series of Hebrews, I wanted to make a clarification based upon what I said in my previous sermon. Um, I had kind of making the illustration, talking about temptation, the difficulty of saying no, I said that it's impossible for me to say no to a donut. And, you know, it got some laughs, and, you know, Joey and Jeff and Tom all warned me, if you make a sermon illustration, be prepared to hear about it for the coming weeks and months. So there were several people who graciously gave me donuts on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or other times during the week, and, and I appreciated that, but I wanted to clarify something. Um, I said that was the only thing that it was impossible for me to say no to. Um, I wanted to clarify that it's also impossible for me to say no to a good steak dinner, to, to ice cream, and to uh, tickets to the Big Ten Championship this Saturday. So now that we got that out of the way, uh, we can get into our sermon this morning. Uh, yeah. So we're in, we're in our series on the book of Hebrews called Greater Than, right? And um, so far we've been looking at how Jesus is superior to all these different things in the, the Jewish religion. He, how he's greater than angels, how he's a better revelation. He has brought a better message. Uh, he has given us greater rest. Um, and we come to these verses at the end of chapter 4, and it is a highly transitional passage. Um, meaning that everything we see in these three verses has either been already mentioned at some point in the first four or three and a half chapters, or is something that he's about to talk about in chapters five through ten. So this, these verses function as a bridge between what we've been learning and what is about to come. And so if you haven't already turned there, I'd invite you to turn with me to this passage um, on page 1189 on the Pew Bibles, or if you have our wonderful little journals, we're on the bottom of page 18. 
And you might need all of this page and maybe some on the next page for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so he's tying together aspects of who the son Jesus is, but bringing about this idea of Jesus as the great high priest. And so while it might seem overwhelming at times, uh, because the next several chapters he's going to be really going into depth discussing Jesus as our high priest, always come back to these verses as a way to kind of get above the weeds, to kind of have a top-down view of the heart of his message. What is he really trying to say in these coming chapters? This, this is it. This is who Jesus, our high priest, is. So the key idea that he's communicating in these verses is that Jesus, as our great high priest, puts us in a unique position before God. Jesus, as our great high priest, puts us in a unique position before God. You know, Tom unpacked for us last week the verses that immediately precede our passage today, which talks about the precise work of the word of God and how it discerns the thoughts and hearts of men and women. And nothing is hidden from his sight, but all is laid bare before him. That is our position before God on our own merit. Naked and ashamed with nowhere to hide. But we're going to see this morning through these verses that when we trust in Jesus, our great high priest, we are in a position before God to hold fast to Jesus, draw near to God, and find grace and mercy. And there's different ways that we could dissect these verses or organize these verses. Um, but what we're going to be looking at this morning, and I know it sounds like a lot, uh, we're going to be looking at three foundations of this truth, two or exhortations that he gives us, and one motivation, um, and one partridge in a pear tree. So if that sounds like a lot to remember, um, you can just sing it to that tune. It works. I've tried it. But now I've probably lost half of you because now you're trying it for yourself. When I told my wife, Claire, yesterday that we're, you know, the outline of my sermon, she says, well, that seems like a lot, but on Thanksgiving, everyone stuffed themselves with turkey and stuffing and green beans and sweet potatoes and pumpkin pie. Now we get an opportunity to stuff ourselves with God's word. So I hope you will be along for the ride with me. So we're going to jump right into this. So he ha he's communicating three foundations of this truth about Jesus, our high priest. And the first is that Jesus, our great high priest, is the son of God. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, really breaking new ground there. This is great. Um, but this is, once again, he's pointing back to arguments that he's already made concerning the Son of God. He doesn't throw around this phrase, Son of God, haphazardly, but uses this title for Jesus as a way to remind his audiences of everything he has already said. I made a list of a few things. Just listen. And this is not everything he has communicated about the Son, but some of the things that he has communicated about Jesus, the Son of God. He says that G the Son is the heir of all things. Through the Son, God created the world. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Son made purification for our sins. The Son sat down at the right hand of God. The Son is greater than the angels. The Son has made his enemies a footstool under his feet. The Son has destroyed the power of death and the devil. The Son was faithful to his Father who appointed him. The Son is greater than Moses. The Son gives us rest. And now we see that the Son is our great high 
priest. The Messiah was the promised one who would come from royal blood, from the tribe of Judah through the line of David. How then can Jesus, the Messiah, be a high priest when he's not from the tribe of Levi? See, the author of Hebrews in the coming chapters is going to discuss this issue. That Jesus is a high priest in a greater priesthood. Not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And if you're wondering what that's all about, you'll have to come back in future weeks. Jesus, as the Son of God, has been given an inheritance to which you and I and all others who confess Jesus as Savior and Lord are partakers in that same inheritance. We will also see in the coming verses, which we will unpack in future weeks, that Jesus was not only the high priest who brought the sacrifice to the altar, but he himself was the sacrifice. Thus, this first foundational truth that Jesus is the Son of God is vastly important to what the author of Hebrews is saying. The second foundational truth, and I know you're like, whoa, that was the first point. That was really quick. Well, hold on. Verse 14 says that our great high priest has passed through the heavens. So our second foundational truth is that Jesus, our great high priest, has completed his work. He has completed his work. In the Old Testament, the temple had different sections to it. The outer court um, was one that all Jews and Gentiles could um, enter into. But then there was an inner boundary that only Jews could enter. Within that, there was a place that only the priests could go. And then at the very center, where you can see in the middle of the temple, it was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it was separated by this huge, thick veil that was draped across the the front of it. And this is the veil that was torn in the temple when Jesus was crucified. And you can read about that in Matthew 27. So the high priest temporarily completed his work when he passed through the veil and offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But his work was never done. He had to do it continually year after year. And when he died, a new high priest took his place, and that high priest did it year after year after year. And when he died, a new high priest was appointed, and he did it year after year after year. It was never complete. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, completed his work when he died on the cross, resurrected three days later, then ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. His sitting at the right hand of God has shown us that his work is complete. The heavens is a metaphorical veil to symbolize that Jesus has since entered into the very physical presence of God and has completed his work. Once again, this idea is going to be explained further on in coming verses, but he's hinting at it here to prepare you for what he's about to say. Nevertheless, this truth that Jesus, our high priest, uh, is foundational to our faith and trust in him. Because his his work is done, it means that there is nothing left for us to do. So those are the two first foundations. The third foundational truth 
is that Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. And here's where I want to camp out for a little bit. But let's read verse 15. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That verse 15 has had many times, it has been of great comfort to me, great encouragement to me, that Jesus has been tempted as I have. But once again, this points back to something that he has already said in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Are you beginning to see the pattern here? In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, the author says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now for this truth, I don't want to just gloss over this. Uh, because what he's saying here in chapter 2 and then also in our passage today is truly remarkable. While it's true that the Lev Levitical priests were human, and thus they knew what it was like to be human, Jesus is able to understand our humanity in a whole new way. He is in a category all to himself. But first, what does it mean to sympathize? When we think of sympathy, I think sometimes we think of feeling sad or sorrowful on the account of someone else. Um, you know, I might have difficulty for, or I might have uh, sympathy for others who are going through a difficult time. But to what level am I able to sympathize if I haven't actually experienced that sorrow or that uh, difficult time myself? I mean, can I really sympathize with the Michigan fan after they lost to Ohio State yesterday? I mean, Ohio State uh, beat them pretty easily, and they've been winning for seven years straight. Well, to an extent, I can sympathize because in addition to being an Ohio State fan, I'm also a Cincinnati Bengals fan. And we consist consistently lose to our rivals, the Steelers. But in this situation, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness in more than just a cognizant way. He doesn't just know our weakness, but he has felt and experienced our weakness. He lived it too. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, physical weaknesses, spiritual, emotional, psychological, and even moral weakness. Now at this point in the discussion of this passage, there is a common objection that arises. How can Jesus really know what I'm feeling and experiencing in this temptation that I'm feeling if he never sinned? He can't fully know what it's like without experiencing it. However, I would argue the direct opposite. I would argue that only Jesus has felt and experienced the full and complete temptation that sin holds. He experienced the full weight of everything that, the, that sin and the devil could throw at him. To illustrate this, I'd like to talk about one of my favorite TV shows. Claire and I discovered this uh, several years ago, and it's a TV show, Survivor. And before you, um, you know, get down on me for loving Survivor, I'll just let you know I could preach a whole sermon about why this is the greatest reality TV show that's ever been created. But there's no time for that now. 
Long story short, um, these group of people are um, left on an island to fend for themselves. They have to build shelter, fire, and along the way, they have to comp compete in these challenges. And at the end of the 39 days of this season, um, the last person standing wins the game and wins a million dollars. Pretty great. Um, but every, you know, once or twice every season, there is a challenge that really tests the player's endurance, really tests their um, physical and mental ability to just keep holding on. And this is an example of a challenge that they've done, where basically you're given this telephone pole with these tiny little footholds, and you have to hold on as long as possible. Whoever holds on the longest wins some sort of reward or something else. And there will always be a few people who, because of the nature of living out in the woods and not having any food, they're physically weak, they give up after five minutes. But then there's some people whose mental and physical abilities allow them to hold on. Some of these challenges go for five hours, seven hours of people just pushing themselves to the limit, never giving up, never giving in. Now let me ask you, who felt the greater weight in the challenge? Was it the player who gave up after five minutes or the one who endured for five hours? I would argue it's the one who endured for five hours, who took the toll, the physical and mental toll, for the duration of the challenge. In the same way, when we give in to temptation and give in to sin, yes, we're feeling that weight, but only until the point when we give in. You see, Jesus never gave in to temptation to sin, and thus he alone has felt and experienced the full weight of sin. And not just the temptations that he faced, the three temptations that the devil gave him in the desert, but temptations throughout his ministry. You know, he was exhausted and tired. He and his disciples went across the lake to escape the crowds, but the crowds beat them and got to the other side, and he could have just gotten back in the boat and gone back to the other side. But instead, he healed the sick, he taught them, and at the end of it all, he fed them, right? The feeding of the 5,000. And so, at this point, there's a second objection that arises. I am tempted to sin in ways that Jesus never was. I mean, was Jesus tempted to cheat on his taxes? Was, tempted, was Jesus tempted to look online at pornography? Was Jesus tempted to experience road rage when he gets stuck in traffic on 465 and Allisonville Road? The short answer is no, he was not. But I stand by my statement. The tools of temptation and the tools of sin can change, but the essence of sin and temptation have been around since the fall. Hatred, murder, greed, dishonesty, lust, these stalk our human path and remain crouching at our door. Thus, Jesus, our high priest, has indeed felt and experienced the full effect of our weaknesses because he chose to identify with us in our humanity, yet he did not sin. There are two exhortations that the author of Hebrews wants to extend to his audience, but first he reminds them of these three foundational truths about Jesus, our great high priest. That he is the son of God, that he has completed his work, and that Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. But the first exhortation that he gives us is, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. 
And we know that this exhortation is based on these previous foundational truths because he begins verse 14 with since then. Or maybe your translation says therefore. Meaning, because this is true about Jesus, let us hold fast to our confession. But what does it mean to hold fast our confession? Our confession is not, in this context, is not pertaining to our confession of sins, but rather a confession or profession that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. The confession to which we should hold fast is the confession that Jesus, as the Son of God, has completed the work of salvation when he died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. Our confession is that Jesus did what we could never do in our flesh, full and complete obedience to God. The Jewish Christian audience that the author of Hebrews is writing to were facing various trials and pressures related to their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Early on, they were viewed by other Jews as heretics for believing that Jesus was the true Messiah. They felt the pressures in their social lives and business lives and religious lives for believing this about Jesus. And they were pressured to give up these beliefs. The command and exhortation is to hold fast and not give up on them. Similarly, we as American Christians or wherever we're at are still facing pressures to give up on certain beliefs about Jesus. We are pressured to admitting that Jesus is not the only way to heaven or eternal life and that there are multiple paths to the top of the mountain. We are pressured into admitting that as long as you believe that Jesus loves you, nothing else matters and you can live however you want. We're pressured into admitting that God just wants us to be happy. So do what makes you happy. We must hold fast to our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and not waver in our beliefs according to what God has revealed to us in Scripture. However, the task of holding fast is easier said than done. The question we must ask is this. What are we holding on to? What are we holding fast to? Are we holding fast to Jesus or to our own abilities? I can have strong faith, the strongest faith in a broken chair that it will hold me. But if the chair is not up to the task, it doesn't matter how great my faith is. The object of our faith is more important than the strength to which we hold firmly to our faith. I'll say that again because I don't want you to miss this. The object of our faith is more important than the strength to which we hold firmly to our faith. There is a constant theme, a thread woven through Hebrews of holding fast, standing firm, remaining to the end. Enter the Sabbath rest. Tom touched on this issue last week, and we'll be discussing it more in future weeks as we get to chapter 6. But what does the Bible, specifically Hebrews, teach about the doctrine of eternal security? Or the question, can a person lose their salvation? When the author says, hold fast your confession, it is not because if you let go, you will be damned to hell. 
Rather, holding fast to your confession of Jesus as the Christ is evidence that your faith in Jesus Christ is truly genuine. For people who make a profession at a young age but then fall away into lives of disobedience, they are showing that their faith was not a saving faith in which they strived to obey and please the Lord. One of my uh, favorite pastors that I like to listen to um, on sermon podcasts, Matt Chandler, has said this in, on, on more than one occasion, and I love just the succinctness in which he puts this. He says, intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. You can believe that God exists, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the Bible is the word of God and not experience the saving grace that God offers through Jesus Christ. That salvation from God through Jesus Christ has life-altering effects which change the way we live our lives and how we choose to obey God rather than our own desires. Not because we're trying to earn his love or favor, but because he has already loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die and pay the penalty for sin which we rightly deserved. That is salvation. Hold fast to that. But for those of you who are sitting here wondering, if you have been truly holding fast to your confession of Jesus... I want to encourage you to keep holding on. Because it's not about who you are, but who you belong to. It's not how strongly you are holding on, but who you are holding on to. It's not the firmness of your faith that saves you, but the firmness of which Jesus went to the cross for your salvation. It is not the depth to which you understand Jesus, but the depth to which he understands you and loves you anyway. You are not holding Jesus in your hand, but he is holding you in his. So hold fast your confession of Jesus as the Son of God. The second exhortation is to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In verse 16, he says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Once again, the word then is kind of building on, because this is true of Jesus, let us do so and so. The high priest of the Levitical priesthood entered into the presence of God once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was often a day filled with fear and reverence. It was not to be taken lightly. After all, there was the man Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant when uh, the covenant Ark was being brought back into Jerusalem and he was stricken dead. God, who is holy, can have no part in unholiness or impurity. Now, because we have Jesus as our eternal high priest, we are able to enter into God's presence on a continual basis. We can draw near with confidence, not with fear. We are able to draw near with confidence because we are not doing so based on our own holiness, but on the holiness of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. God is inviting us, encouraging us to draw near to him. Intimacy requires 
closeness? How can we develop an intimate relationship with God if we stay distant from him? We must understand the counterintuitive picture that is being painted here in Hebrews. Instead of approaching the throne of God in fear, in nakedness, and shame, and receiving judgment, we are able to approach the throne of God with confidence, clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness, and receive grace and mercy. But what happened? What flipped the script? Jesus, our great high priest, has made it possible for us to approach God's throne with confidence. Do not take this blessing for granted. Do not hesitate to approach God because he knows you, he sees you, and yet he does not judge you because your faith is in the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ. So that is the second exhortation. So we move to the final point. A timely motivation. The motivation to approach God with confidence to receive grace is that so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus we come to our final stop in our journey through these verses. This is the motivation. Now when I say one motivation, I do not mean that this is our only motivation or rather that this should be our highest motivation, only that this is the one motivation that the author includes in this text. When we approach the throne of grace with the confidence that Jesus gives us, knowing we are covered in the blood of the Lamb, we are promised by God that we will receive mercy and find grace when we are in need. Notice that it doesn't say that we will no longer be in need. Rather, when we are in need, we know that this promise exists. Maybe you find yourself in a position today where your faith in God is paper thin, and this Sunday is your last chance. Draw near to God and receive grace and mercy. Maybe you're in a place where you're faced with a difficult decision which seems life-altering and you're not sure what to do. Draw near to God and receive grace and mercy. Maybe you're just beginning to learn about Jesus and what he has done for you. Draw near to God and receive grace and mercy. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for your whole life, but there's that one area of sin that always seems to continually conquer you. Draw near to God and receive grace and mercy. No matter what situation or stage in life you are in, we are all able to draw near to God, to be in his very near presence, and he has promised us grace and mercy to help us in times of need. And let's face it, as sinful human beings, we are in need every day. Jesus is indeed our high priest who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. His position as the Son of God and the completion of his work on this earth has given us a unique position before God. We no longer stand before him in judgment, but can approach his throne of grace with confidence, knowing that he will help us in times of need. However, there is still an exhortation to hold fast until the end. I mentioned earlier that um, my wife and I were in Missouri this week and that we've been 
you know, I've been going there just about every year um, since before I can even remember. Um, yes, it's a time of thanksgiving and rejoicing, um, but it also has a bittersweet feeling to it. Seven years ago today, uh, November 25th, 2011, the day after Thanksgiving, my extended family and everyone who was there in town drove to the nursing home uh, where my grandparents were staying. My grandfather had um, been battling Parkinson's disease for as long as I can remember, um, and while he had been able to get around on his own for a while, in recent years, he, his health had been declining, um, and at 80 years old, it was diminishing quickly. It was a somber moment for all of us. Um, I can still picture it to this day. Uh, we we kind of get into this visitation room, and my um, grandmother wheels in my grandfather in his wheelchair, and uh, he is struggling just to stay awake, to have the energy to sit up, and we all take turns kind of greeting him, giving him a hug, and he doesn't even have the energy to, to say our names, let alone his wife Margie's name. And uh, it was just kind of this somber moment where we're sitting there realizing that, you know, we might not see him again. Um, and my mom, uh, his daughter, suggests, let's, let's sing a song. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, no, not now. This is not the time or place to do that. But my grandfather, uh, for the last 20 years or so of his uh, unretired life, was a Lutheran minister in many Lutheran parishes in Arkansas and Tennessee and Missouri. And he would always lead us in a hymn before the Thanksgiving meal. Um, and as the patriarch of our family, it was always just something I will remember forever. So we decided to sing a hymn, and we sang the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So we started singing. And from across the room, I watched as my grandfather, unable to make an audible noise, barely able to stay awake, mouthed, Every single word to what a friend we have in Jesus. And of course, there was no dry eye in that room. My brothers and I tried to hide it because who likes crying? But the reason I tell this story is because that is a picture, if I've ever seen one, of someone holding fast to the end. That my grandfather, despite his weaknesses, despite knowing that he didn't have much time left on this earth, he was holding fast to Jesus. Four days later, my grandfather went home to be with his Lord and great high priest. The other reason I tell this story is because in a moment we're going to have an opportunity to sing together what a friend we have in Jesus. Up until that day, I had always heard that song and thought, compared Jesus as a friend to my earthly friends. Fair weather friends at best. But oh, Jesus is so much more than that. He is the Son of God. 
left his throne, came to earth, died on the cross, and is eternally interceding for us on our behalf. He knows our every weakness because he became like us and lived among us. And because his death, resurrection, and ascension, we have the privilege, the privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Entering into his throne room with confidence, knowing we will receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your presence. On our own merit, we are naked and ashamed, but because of the righteousness of Christ, we have the ability and the privilege to draw near to you, to draw near to your throne with confidence. I pray that we would not pass up that great opportunity to carry everything to you in prayer. So, Father, that is what we're doing. We surrender our burdens, our worries, our anxieties, everything in our life that causes us stress. We surrender that to you, knowing that you care for us as you care for your own Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for our time together this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.